Good day, nerds. This is Megan coming at you with another Cantina Conversation. Today's chat is with Ashley Winstead, author of The Last Housewife, um, which comes out August 16th. I really enjoyed this book, but, you know, a lot of trigger warnings just just to give you guys a heads up. <laughs> and I really enjoyed learning about how her experiences while pursuing her PhD exposed her to the, you know, other great philosophers that we know and how their their words and their literature influences a lot of not so um, positive <laughs> literature and and you know philosophies that carry on today but um you know i'll let you guys listen to the conversation so you know you'll get to know what i mean so without further ado here's ashley winstead we're here with ashley winstead author of the last housewife that comes out august 16th ashley thank you so much for joining us today um this this book was a lot (laughs) there's a lot to unpack here uh, but it was really captivating and really entertaining and um, paced really well. And it's, it was, it was a bit to handle, but I'm, I'm so glad I, I had the opportunity. So thank you um, for taking the time. We get to chat more about it. Oh, yes. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be able to talk to you about it. And thank you so much for reading it. Um, oh, and yeah, sure. it is, it is definitely a lot. So I'm excited to dive into all of that. Yeah, for sure. Um, so to get started, how about you give like a little summary so that listeners can kind of follow along with the conversation? Yeah. So um, I kind of casually refer to The Last Housewife, which is my sophomore thriller, um, as uh, my cult revenge thriller. It's promising young woman meets um, eyes wide shut. So a little bit of a throwback there um, in that last comp. But essentially, it opens with a woman named Shade Roy, who is a Dallas housewife. Um, she's having a leisurely day by the pool, pl- presses play on the latest episode of her favorite true crime podcast. And through this uh, episode, finds out that her best friend from college has been found dead on their old college campus. And so not only is this shocking news in and of itself, but Shay, uh, my protagonist, quickly realizes that um, she might be one of the only people left who knows that her friend Laurel's body, the way it was found almost exactly mirrors the way another woman's body was found eight years ago. And so this knowledge and the fear of what that knowledge could mean drives Shay to upend her life do something she vowed she would never do, which is go back to her college hometown and start to pull up the thread um, of threads of her friend's life. I feel like even that summary is just enough to make readers want to want to be like, wait, okay, what's that about? So um, let's uh, coming off of that. How about we like, you know, go in, go into your background a little bit and, and maybe kind of go into like what led you to tell this type of story to, to go with so many of these, um, you know, for lack of better words, like triggering themes, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> what, a, what a fun way to, <laughs> to introduce myself. Um, so you're going to be like, what? This She wrote this. Um, yeah. So I, I promise I am um, quite a normal person um, in my, in my day to day. So um, I am the author of two other books before The Last Housewife. So uh, they have both strangely, or, you know, they were, it was planned, but came out within this past year. So Housewife will be my third book coming out 
Um, within the space of a year, my debut is In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife. And I followed that up with a romance, actually. So I write uh, in two different genres, and that romance is Fool Me Once. So um, I have my PhD in English literature, contemporary American literature. And I mentioned that just because I leaned on it so heavily mm. um, in writing Housewife. I, I actually think I started to do research for The Last Housewife, albeit subconsciously, <laughs> through my years in graduate school, kind of like reading really important philosophers, people, men, mostly I was taught to respect um, and uh, noting things about their regard for women and their mm. um, tenets about men and women and thinking, wow, you know, Kant, we think he's one of the uh, the great thinkers of, of humanity. And we're told to just like kind of push aside the fact that he didn't really think women were wholly equal creatures to men, but like everything mm. else he's great on. So <laughs> I started kind of collecting a lot of um, thoughts and also got my certification in women's and gender studies along with everything else I was working on. So um, basically I've been preparing to write The Last Housewife for a really long time. Mm. Um, and the first seed of the idea came to me as I was thinking about what lay at the core of In My Dreams, I Hold a Knife, my first book for me. And I got a lot of really cool questions, thought-provoking questions about what it was that made me want to write that book. And I realized across the board, I'm really interested in obsessions and perversions, um, which I know is like a Patricia Highsmith thing that she's <laughs> quoted. I very much agree with that. And in particular, I'm interested in why people are so attracted to things that hurt them. Mm-hmm. You know, what that part of the human psyche is. And I include myself in this, um, that, you know, is the the death drive, I guess, to borrow from Freud or just what is it? What is that thing? Um, and so as I started to think about that, I became really fascinated with cults. And as an example of that writ large, Mm -hmm. spread across a large number of people. And it's a really good time um, to be fascinated by cults because (laughs) there's just like so much material out there. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of the heyday of the Nexium cult documentaries. And, um, you know, I I went down a rabbit hole there Mm -hmm. and similar with the Sarah Lawrence sex cult, which is actually the most direct inspiration for The Last Housewife, the story of The Last Housewife. Is that also um, a documentary or? So it's not. Strangely, very little has been done around the Sarah Lawrence sex cult. I read about it in The Cut, which did a long investigative piece. And that to date, I think is one of the longer pieces, though I just saw that one of the cult survivors just published a book. Okay. And so I purchased his book and I think it's called Slonum Nine or Slonum Woods. I, I apologize. I don't know that I'm perfectly off the top of my head, but I'm going to read this book and I'm really excited that it exists. And yeah, um, but yeah, there's been not a lot done. It's a fascinating story though. Yeah, and if I tell so... you too much about it, it'll spoil um, the last yeah. time I'm going to dance around. That. No, ex- yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. We do. We do want to, uh, you know, tread lightly on the spoilers. <laughs> yeah, I will. I will do that. So uh, yeah, if you're curious, um, check that out. Oh, for sure. I think yeah, I'll have to add it to like my read list or, you know, yeah. Cause kind of going off of that, you know, I, you know, I'm true crime podcaster myself and it is one of those things. It's like why I can't explain my obsession, well, obsession. I can't explain my interests in it or like why I 
subscribe to each episode's release or things like that. And but I don't know if it's like some kind of subconscious survival tactic of just to like mm-hmm. be aware of things that are out there. Um, you know, I, that might be one theory, but um, kind of going off of like your background. So and and what kind of planted and and you know, made way your process that um made way for beginning this book. What um what kind of like research was involved? Because you got a couple, the, the, the themes are all pretty intense, but there's also, you know, the powers at play and how, you know, what kind of research other than maybe, you know, your own brain <laughs> did you have yeah. to kind of dig into to, to come up with this? There's a lot packed into this book. And so I wrote Housewife, once I got the idea to write about a woman who, um, had been part of a cult in college and had clawed her way back out and was now going back in. Um, I was then set with the challenge of crafting this cult mm-hmm. and this cult leader and what it was going to look like. And I have been and continue to be very terrified and morbidly fascinated at the same time by the turn against women Mm -hmm. that we're witnessing in this country. And Mm -hmm. not that this is anything novel because it's obviously a tale as old as time. Right. And that's part of what I'm trying to show in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But just that the veneer, the mask, uh, you know, of civility is slipping more. And so um, I knew that I wanted to write a book about men who fundamentally believed women were inferior um, and that this wasn't a thing to be, you know, a thing to be mourned, but was something that if women accepted it, they would Mm. be empowered in this secondary place. Um, And also, you know, it was the missing factor that kept men in their belief from their full power and glory in contemporary society. And all of these um, things that I'm saying should sound pretty familiar because you see it in religions. Uh, you know, this is, this is things you've heard before. You see it in incel forums, which I went to and read. Oh God. Um, you see it in, <laughs> I can't yeah, imagine. Oh. Quite a toxic yeah. uh, thing. Mm-hmm. I had to take a shower later, but, but the way that it just overlaps so much with a lot of what we see in right-wing rhetoric, that's like Mm. on your TV, you know, Mm. that's not trying to hide. And all of, all of that kind of just dovetailed with 36 years now of experience being a woman in the world and um, having to negotiate my, my safety and my power and, within academia, just physically, like all of these layers. And so I knew I wanted to craft this cult that, you know, believed all these tenets that, that readers would read and think like, God, that could, that could exist. Like I could see that even though it's outrageous. Mm -hmm. I know a guy who might. Yeah. And it's, it is crazy. Cause I, you know, if we go on like social media and just I, I noticed that like, you know, with the pages or the, or just with how I interact with social media or this goes to anybody, it's your algorithm will follow that. And so yep. when I see like the other extreme, I'm reminded that there are really people who are so back ass words and they're thinking, or I don't even know, like it's, it's really hard and it's like, takes too much energy to try to get them to understand yeah. <laughs> like, you know, that women are, are deserving people and we're equal and like we're human beings and it's, it's so stupid. And, but it's, I thought it was so interesting how a lot of what the central like 
thoughts of the people on the other side where they were like, how you mentioned before, like, oh no, if you, you could find power in just like, yeah. like accepting your, your place in the world. It's like, wh- what? Like, and that's like just the manipulation and the way yeah. that these was like, m- like twisting those words around and how impressionable, like, y- you know, that was for that age group, for the young, like college girls and how, you know, and, and we're so vulnerable at the time. And it was like, I don't want to say Shay's vulnerable, but she's also like, something's pulling her to that. And then she's totally she, vulnerable. Yeah. yeah. And it's oh, like, yeah. she's, she's forced to like ex- examine herself and she doesn't I even do, know yeah. like what, and it's so, it's so crazy. It's yeah. I, I think part of that was just so engaging and so captivating. Cause it was like the way that they spun it, <laughs> the way yep. The way that the, I was like, what? And then it even kind of like reflected in one of the characters, Nicole, where she Nicole. had to, I was having Shay talk to her and she was mm-hmm. just like, what? No, like, why not just accept it? Like, we're going to be going through this anyway, type of thing, or nothing's going to change how they think. So we might as well like get what we can out of it. And exactly. <clears throat> it was just, you know, it was also like a, a crazy mentality that, survival instincts again all of it was just i yeah <laughs> it's like harder like it you know articulate things that are so blatant like clearly wrong <laughs> like I, so i love <clears throat> that you that you pointed to the twisting element um because the idea the argument that through submission and through acceptance of your inferior position and through like the relinquishment of power, um, which is what the, the men in, in this cult, the paters preach and tell to the women that, you know, this is how they get power. That idea, which sounds so radical, is actually like the bridge between um, the all the cult research that I did on leaders like the leader of the Nexium cult and others and a lot of religious leaders who, you know, preach the same thing, like power through submission, Mm. um, power through relinquishment of power. And you're like, wait, but no, uh, they have a whole logic for it. That the bridge between that and all of my philosophers like Plato and Aristotle Mm. and, and Kant and everyone else who are preaching in their major works, that this is an approach that women need to take as well. And that Mm. this is just the way of the world. And so it's, it sounds so radical and so ridiculous until you realize that it's like one of the oldest ideas in existence that has played a part of shaping, you know, at least Western society um, and continues to manifest in so many ways in contemporary society. So um, I hold by the fact that everything that I created in this book has like a deep real world basis and even so far as the characters, this isn't actually something I've, I've said before, told anyone else, but every man you meet in the Pater Society is based on a man I have met and known mm. in my life mm. that I kind of ran with and gave him, you know, a little bit more um, latitude and exaggeration. But essentially, these are all people. And in my head, what I was doing was kind of going through all the different ways you could be a misogynist. It's almost like a misogynist, yeah. uh, you know, carnival ride. Yeah. Uh, so, so on and so on. And um, again, I won't spoil anything, but I think readers, you know, if you read it, you will see what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. And it's, it, yeah. And it is a little eye opening. And I think, you know, 
this is this might be a little if any men read this book i think even then they might you know they might see it as really extreme but i think they are the ones who probably would benefit most from reading something like this because this 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 book is described as like a pitch black thriller which i don't i guess i don't totally understand but it was like Mm. no there is no humor whatsoever there's no and and you teeter the line too you 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 didn't want to shy away from the details of things that happened but you did like you you touched just enough you gave just enough details where you know i i i I powered through this book and it was so easy to like get get captivated engaged in but at the same time i was like well maybe maybe I should like go for a walk or something like maybe I should put it down for like 10 minutes. Yeah. It was, it was intense, but kind of like um, piggybacking off of like the cult stuff. Why do you think to per question, why do you think people start cults? Why do you think people join cults? I think that people who start cults are people who feel deeply at a loss. Like they don't feel powerful themselves they're, they're usually extreme narcissists. Mm. Um, so people who feel that the world is not giving them or affording them the recognition and whatever else that they feel is due to them because of their superior intellect, because of their superior charm or charisma, uh, because of their superior spiritual connection, whatever it is. So these are unfulfilled narcissists who also happen to be charming. Mm. And that is something that really threw me because when you look at like the leader of Nexium or the leader of the Sarah Lawrence sex cult, you look at them and you're like, this guy, how, you know, why did all of these women <laughs> who had hard power, money, fame oh, right. in the case of, of Nexium uh, connections, how did they give everything to this guy, you know? Mm. Um and there's just like this ability that is almost like beyond charisma. It's like predatory charisma to identify people who are vulnerable or searching or are in need of something that they currently aren't getting. And part of the fun, if I'm allowed to use that word, of <laughs> writing Don, um, yeah. who is the cult leader, is really figuring out how smart he was because I started out with this idea of who he was as a character, what he was capable of. And as I started writing him, I discovered that he was like smarter and more wily and more resourceful than I had even given him credit for. And he had to be to like identify what each of the women in this book didn't have. And mm-hmm. he did. Like whether mm-hmm. it was a father figure or a fear of, of, you know, being ostracized or a desire for power. Like that is what good cult leaders do is they figure out what it is and it's different for, for almost everyone. Mm-hmm. And they, they figure out how to give it to you and then make you feel like they're the only person you yeah. can get it from. So, and there's extraordinary gratification in that. Like, even if I think we've all been in experiences and relationships where we've had a little more power and how seductive that can be to maybe like wield that. Um, So I think just magnetizing that um, is, is with cult leaders. And why do people join cults kind of speaking to that in the, that like, there are so many reasons, but I think that the desire for a a home, the desire to encounter someone who has the answers 
Mm. when we feel lost and the world keeps disappointing us, like that is the most seductive thing anyone could promise you um, is that if you, if you listen to them, if you follow them, you will have like existential dread lifted off, you know, that existential dread of being a human being Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they figured it out and all you need to do is say yes. Yeah. And that's, really reflected in um laurel's behavior where she's definitely in a very 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 vulnerable place when we meet her and or when um when she's kind of like reflecting on uh she's telling her story to to her friend because i read another a couple books about you know fiction but they like centered around cults like that was kind of like one of the main storylines that it's very consistent where it is like you know you hit it on the head where you know, you think people join start cults because of that that lust for power, and they're very charming, and they feel like they, you know, and then they they are predatory, where they seek out followers who have like a weakness, and they know how to manipulate them, they know how to find that and work it and make them see it. And it's even at the beginning, like the people who join the cult, they're like, oh no, this doesn't seem too bad, or you know, because it starts off like little baby steps, and then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, wait a second, like you know exactly yeah and when something like really drastic happens and it's and then people are kind of like wait like when can't we just like go back to in the beginning like how like everything seemed fine no one ever like you know (laughs) you with the big stuff at the beginning it's all the like let me provide for you don't you feel warm and safe with me let me introduce these ideas to you it just gently expands your understanding Mm -hmm, you know now mm -hmm. i'm gonna push it a little bit uh, further and you know it's just like that um it is br- is brilliant evil but brilliant the way mm-hmm, mm-hmm. some people are able to um get people to follow them um and you know like the examples expand outside of the cult world into you know politicians and others um, oh god yeah <laughs> like the same skill set that you're so right it's like a luring in and to to kind of speak if you don't mind to something you mentioned earlier um, with the the podcast, Shay telling her story to Jamie. Um, so Shay, for people who haven't read the book, is telling her life story to Jamie, the podcast host, who's also her best friend from childhood, who's now estranged. So she's telling him, filling him in on the life, parts of her life he's missed. And I very intentionally knew writing writing that, that, you know, I understood what Shay was doing was its own kind of seduction, its own kind mm, of luring. Mm. So she, in a way, does to Jamie, you know, not not quite as evilly, but you, what Dawn does to her, which is like the hook and the reeling in. And she has her own reasons for it. And one thing I do want to say is there's no comedy in this book, but there is romance. Mm, so mm-hmm. there is like a little counterbalance to the light. And I did that really intentionally. Though even with um, with that romance, there are a lot of of uh, things that you could that you know you could say about it. Um, yeah, yeah. And I did like Jamie, and I like you know he he seemed to look at the world with rose colored glasses, and like he needed a break from her, like from her telling her story. And she's like, she's like, no, I'm not, you know, like no, I'm I'm trying to get you to understand because the whole point is like yeah. to see. Like, no, I think, you know, you really need to know everything that went on in order to try to put the pieces together and figure out what happened to her, what happened to this, to this woman. Cause I she's like, I, you know. Yeah. And like part of the reason why I wrote the book the way I did and went to places that maybe other writers wouldn't have gone to 
um, just in terms of showing things on the page mm-hmm. um, is because I do strongly believe that there is power in confronting things that are brutal, that are visceral, that make you have to put a book down. Because I think in order to survive our day-to-day lives, we numb ourselves mm. to brutality and death and, you know, all those things that cause the visceral reactions. They're still out there. We're just, you know, in order to survive, pretending they don't exist a little bit in our day-to-day. Um, and I think books are a safe space, a safe place to encounter those shocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and as someone who like, you know, drew on my own experience with sexual harassment and sexual violence in writing this book, um, I have found that books are a space where I am comfortable experimenting with reopening wounds. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm in control and there's a part of me that hungers mm. to go back to those places and think about it in process. And so it was, it was really important to me from both like the writerly perspective of I'm going to go there because, you know, there, there is value, there's power in going there, not for your entire book, because no one would be able to get through that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in moments and, you know, also from the readerly uh, perspective of knowing how important that's been for me as a reader. Um, yeah. In, in processing. So I decided I would go there, but that I would mediate some of the worst moments through the podcast dialogue. Yeah. So that you're getting Shay's perspective. You have those breaks where Jamie intercuts something, you know, there are like moments of relief. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I tried to do that really intentionally. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think you found a really nice balance just in, in to kind of like through Shay and then also for the reader yeah like you said like how jamie kind of chimes in or he's mm-hmm. also be just being he's and he even says he's like you know i'm not i'm not being a professional right now i'm sorry like let me like go yeah. on like it's yeah. you know just little things like that where it's like we're reminded that jamie is her long lost childhood friend and it's like he he is that support even though he's trying to be professional about it but yeah it's yeah. those little tidbits in there that that really help him you know he he furthers a story along too in his own way um so kind of like going off of that what were um another two-parter what were um <laughs> what were the most challenging parts to write and then um if any what were the most enjoyable parts to write oh yeah um it might not be what you expect <laughs> <laughs> so i think a huge challenge for me. I knew I wanted to write a book that had um, woven different stories all in one. So you have your frame narrative with the Scheherazade kind of running through in the different parts. Um, You have your kind of more straightforward unfolding action of the story. And then you have the podcast transcripts. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I knew I wanted to weave it all together because I'm a huge fan of braided narratives and I wanted to try to write one. And the hardest part for me was what a challenge it is to show readers scenes and unfolding action told exclusively through a person's dialogue. Yeah, because that is so limiting Mm -hmm. um, as to how you can describe what's happening. I can't write these scenes in a way that Shay or Jamie wouldn't nat doesn't that doesn't sound like natural dialogue. So sure. I can't like go off and make a poetic observation or like <laughs> set the scene through 
physical, a paragraph of physical description, the way, you know, you can, and when you're just writing unfolding action, right. It had to all be through dialogue. And so that was the hardest part because I was sincerely worried that readers would get frustrated hearing it all in dialogue. Mm, Um, Yeah hearing it that way. But I've been, I think that it works. And I knew I needed to do it that way, just because this is the first time Shay is ever getting to tell her story. And I knew it needed to be in her voice. So, but at the same time, that was the trickiest. I can't tell you how many times I revised those podcast transcripts, Mm. trying to make things sound more natural, trying, you know, on and on. Right. Um, So trickiest there. The most enjoyable for me are always the parts that um, flow where like, I don't even realize that I'm writing because I've lost track of time. Mm -hmm. And, and that's really just about the language. So there are moments of stark, brutal violence in this book that I was writing with like a giant smile on my face, (laughs) Um, you know, just like typing away because the scene was just flowing for me. And I always, always love writing scenes of intimacy, you know, like emotional intimacy and romance. Mm -hmm. So I would say those also were some of my favorites to write. Nice. Um, So yeah, when you mentioned before with Shahrazad, I never heard of that before until I read a book called the silence of Shahrazad. And even then I didn't realize the origin of her, of that story. And because the, the silence of Shahrazad is about like the great fire of Smyrna um, mm. with the Ottoman empire and you know how those different is from the perspective of um, like four different families from those cultures that were really um, in, immersed in that area at the time. And then how it all, they all experienced that um, incident, but um, they wove, the character Shahrazad in it and it mm. was when she decided she was a mute she st- she decided to stop talking and then so this whole time I'm reading mm. this book I'm like I thought she was just like another character and then the author was speaking to her she explained it to me that it's from you know an old tale mm-hmm. and I'm just like oh my god that just like makes it that much more powerful like I had like the whole I feel like I would have had a whole new experience had I known that while reading <laughs> yeah totally. you know so now like uh, when I read Shahrazad yeah that's exactly. a whole different thing exactly I like and where she chooses to to not speak anymore and yeah that's so yeah even that was like so powerful and so that's when when you were um when I was started reading your book I was like oh that's a word I recognize a name I recognize it's a character <laughs> I I person recognize. yeah <laughs> and yeah, so um great. Yeah. And so I thought it was so interesting how you decided to like, how you say, I like the term braiding in mm-hmm. her like perspective or her, like, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, experience into this, this overarching story with like, it's like the, the theme is consistent and it's, you know, going off of her being like, and, <laughs> and then the, each part, you know, it was like, Oh, you, well, I don't know. I want to say sneaky bitch. It was something like, it was something, yeah, yeah. It was something similar. I have the book right here, but yeah, I just remember like, like, Oh wait, okay. Shahrazad hair again. I was like, so how did yeah. you, um, how'd you go about like choosing that as your, um, the story or the historical little, uh, you know, way that you're going to in, in, intertwine that with, with, um, yeah. the bigger picture. So one of my big inspirations for, uh, the last housewife in terms of structure um, and theme was 1001 Nights, which is the story 
Um, and, and for any readers who haven't, um, you know, read the myths or heard of them. So essentially, in short, it's this really old, um, started through oral tradition, has been copied over many, many times, um, set of stories that are Indian and Iranian in origin, historians believe. Um, and the Scheherazade story is the frame narrative for all of these thousand stories. And so she is actually the storyteller of, um, you know, of the Aladdin story and the Sin- Sinbad story and all of these other stories that people might be familiar with. And the myth goes that um, there was a king whose wife cheated on him. And in his furious rage, he beheaded her. And continuing in his rage, he, he began to marry all of the women of the kingdom one by one. So he'd marry a woman, um, bed her at night, and before dawn would behead her again. So he was systematically killing all the women in his kingdom. No one knew what to do. Um, the executioner's daughter, Scheherazade, finally stepped in and said to her father, let me marry the king. So she volunteered um, and she is a clever woman. Um, And so she had a plan and she married the king. The king brought her to bed. And instead of anything else, Scheherazade began to tell him a story. And the king got so hooked on the story that when she ended it on a cliffhanger for the night, he kept her alive so that he could hear the rest of that story. And so for a thousand nights, she pulled off this feat, this sleight of hand. And when you read the thousand and one nights, it is structurally magnificent because it is stories buried in stories, buried in stories. Like you'll read it and Scheherazade will be like, and yeah, and then, you know, this person walked by with their cattle and, oh, that's a different story that you probably (laughs) want to hear. And the king will say, tell me that story. So all of a sudden you pause and now you're in this. So it's just the layers. Um, And so I was so struck. And of course, you know, at the end of the thousand, the 1000 nights, the king has fallen in love with Scheherazade. So her reward for saving all the women in the kingdom from a murderer is that she marries the murderer. This is always very dissatisfying to me. Um, (laughs) And I was also very, very, as a storyteller myself, um, fascinated by the idea of telling stories to save your life. That that story that you are telling is the one thing standing between you and destruction. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what an apt metaphor for the identity construction we all do every day. Mm -hmm. And the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what people are allowed to do to us you know, just like how the world works. And so I knew that I wanted this book to be about that act. Um, And so the Scheherazade, um, it's, well, I won't say the spoiler, but it's someone talking to Scheherazade Mm -hmm. um, and, and finding a lot in relation with Scheherazade. And as a reader, you don't know who that person is. You have guesses, but you don't <laughs> fully know who they are until the very end. And then you see, you know, the stories within the stories of The Last Housewife, the way that they exist structurally in, in 1001 Nights. So I was trying to pull that off. Yeah, no, I really, I really enjoyed it because it was, yeah, just from what I knew about those stories and that history and who that character is and thought it was so interesting how you chose that character to 
further illustrate everything you're trying to say and in a more like profound way if if it was even possible um it was just it was also like a nice break too because then you 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 the readers are brought back to it and you're like oh yeah oh shit has it Shahrazad like what's <laughs> yeah what's going on with her oh yeah. nothing good <laughs> yeah right <laughs> exactly um what advice would you give to Shay what advice would you give to Jamie oh such a good question <laughs> I would say Shay well which age Shay oh Shay. right uh, let's say both you could say yeah, because I imagine they're, they'd be very different pieces of advice <laughs> or maybe the same. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm kind of thinking like it's easier for me to think of what I would tell um, younger Shay, who, which, who, you know, is like looking for some sort of power um, and is looking in the wrong places for it. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know how to like find it outside of men um, who are mirrors for her. So that would be my advice to her is to stop looking at other people, particularly men to empower her. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause even though it's seductive and sometimes easy, she gets a lot of attention that, that path, you know, lies ruin. Mm-hmm. Um, and to adult Shay, I think I, my advice would probably be that guilt doesn't have to consume you. And, you know, there are, ways to bring order to your life that aren't burning you know there are ways to deal with toxic structures that aren't burning them down um, (laughs) with yourself trapped inside i know that's uh, i like that advice because i think recently i've my mentality is just like oh let's just burn it all to the ground like what else do we do (laughs) i that is the that is the real thing that motivated this book is that Mm -hmm. feeling Mm-hmm. So kind of going off of that, like, what do you hope readers uh, get out of either Shay's story or this, you know, the big picture of The Last Housewife? Yeah, something that has touched me very much from early readers is I've had both men and women actually reach out to me to say that some of the most powerful parts of the book were when Shay is describing like what it's like to go through puberty Mm. Um, And have her body suddenly be like a public commodity or highly visible in new ways or, um, you know, just like some of the more quotidian parts of her upbringing that are still evidence of how just how deeply misogyny and patriarchy reaches its hand into your brain as a woman Mm. Mm -hmm. reshapes you. Um, But I think if if my hope would be if people, if readers relate to that, or for men, sometimes it's been really lovely to hear that that was very eye-opening. And to just think about how deeply uh, we are shaped at the most intimate levels of like our thoughts and our feelings by, you know, that we think of as ours and natural, and we came up with those impulses and instincts and desires uh, I would want readers to actually question all of the things that feel like instincts, I guess, mm-hmm. would be like the highest value the yeah. last housewife could provide. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, kind of going off of what I said earlier, I'm glad that it was eye-opening for men as well, because I think men would learn much more from this piece than um, 
than women would. Cause it's almost like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, a, a lot of the times, a lot of what was said or a lot of the themes um, that were in this book, I just found myself saying, yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like it's not, you know, no, nope, yep. Yep, that happens. This is real. Like it's yeah. been there, unfortunately, been there, done that. Other than so there is one other question I kind of want to ask that I'm curious about it. So yeah. how do you get into the headspace of writing such like sensitive material? And then how do you like such dark material? And then how do you mm-hmm. get yourself back out of it? Writing thrillers, especially dark thrillers like Housewife, is like um performing hypnosis on myself. Like there's so I'm serious. There's something about that blank page and my intention in my head. I know where I need to go. Um and I have the great privilege of being able to sit in a room with the time and space to just go there without interruption. And that I just it it feels like sinking underwater. Mm. and coming back out hours later into some like you know terrestrial world where I've been underwater this whole time but that is really the way that it feels and so my headspace is it's like it's more foggy than anything Mm. like when I wrote the, the the months that I was writing housewife it was like the only thing I could think about it was the only thing I wanted to do Mm. um you know my husband would have to remind me to eat (laughs) you know it was just like I had it in my head like Shay says at some point I like I'm burning to tell I have to get it out and I haven't had a writing experience quite like that Mm -hmm. before since we'll see Um, but there was a sense of urgency and it helped me sink into the dark places that I need to go and um, actually the version that is the final version is much pulled back from the original draft that I wrote because I gave my editor nightmares according oh, to Oh my goodness. <laughs> I guess that's, <laughs> so, that's what editors are for. So <laughs> Exactly. I'm saying like, you know, okay, I see what you're doing there. <laughs> also, maybe not. Right. Um, yeah. So can maybe. you pull back a little bit? <laughs> exactly. And I, I do struggle with that a lot when I write because um, I am an intense person mm. in my thoughts and my feelings and the media I like to consume. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I am still learning as a writer to have a better balance. Yeah. Um, so that's like one of my goals too. And I, I listened to Sean Cosby, S.A. Cosby, um, actually another writer, Razorblade Tears and Blacktop Wasteland. He's just, he's just a phenomenal writer. He's known for very violent um, books. And he said that that was something he struggled with too, that he relied on his editor to tell him when he needed to walk back yeah. on the line. Cause when you get so into it, you're just willing to walk yeah. up and pass lines and yeah. do things that aren't like commercially viable <laughs> and, or maybe even healthy. Um, so right. thank it's God a- for the team that yeah. make a book. Yeah, exactly. And it, yeah, it helps to have the fresh set of eyes and it helps to have that fresh brain too, like that fresh perspective totally. of like, yeah. Cause you've like how you're saying, you're like, it was just like your world for a while. And then to have an, a, you know, the other team kind of give it that, you know, fresh, fresh look. And they're like, Whoa, like, <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like let's talk about pulling some of these scenes back. Yeah. Right. No, yeah. that it is essential. I can't imagine making books without like that, that team in place. Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. So last question. So what's, what's next? Um, are you working on anything, uh, other future projects? Yeah, I am um, going to be publishing two books a year for the next two years. Um, Cause that's kind of how the little path I've set myself on with romance and thrillers. Okay. So um, next year I am publishing um, my second rom-com, my second romance. I'm so excited about it. Can't talk too much about it, but sure. it'll be in, in May, 2023. Um, and then in August, 2023, we'll, I'll publish my third thriller, which is called Midnight is the Darkest Hour. And it is a Louisiana serial killer uh, love okay. story. Okay. Okay. So I've got my brand <laughs> sticking yeah. to it basically. Yeah. Right. And you're finding that balance by switching between thrillers and I think I'm actually tr- think I'm doing it in this yeah. third book. I think I'm really striking that balance a little bit. Nice. More. I can't wait to, to hear. It. I can't <laughs> wait to see it. I can't wait to read it. Thank um, you. but yeah, so Ashley Winston, the last housewife comes out August 16th. Thank you so much. I felt like we could have gone a, down a bunch of rabbit holes, um, oh, yeah. you know, but it was, it was such an enjoyable conversation. I love diving a little bit deeper into it. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for you cause you very talented. The story was written so well and I'm, you know, I'll be excited to, to see what else you got going on. Thank you so much, Megan. This is such an honor and so much fun. Thank you for the incredible questions. Yeah. Oh, I no. could have talked to you forever. <laughs> And there you have it. That was Ashley Lindstead, author of The Last Housewife, which comes out August 16th. As always, rate, review, subscribe. You can check out the show notes to follow her on her website and her social media. Um, be sure to follow the uh, Nerd Cantina and Cantina Book Club um, on Twitter and on Instagram. And you can also follow me as well, MC McCarthy 214 um, to just stay in touch and to stay up to date on book reviews, author interviews, and all that good stuff. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for listening.